Esther 3, verse 1, it says, After these events, your version may say after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Now, we've been talking a little bit about how when stories unfold, you usually, in the first part of a movie or a book, you will get the major characters presented to you, and you'll get maybe a little backstory about each of them. But I believe, if I have the count right, uh, Haman is the fifth major character introduced to us, but we don't, we don't get to see him until chapter 3. And some believe that his name, Haman, actually hails from the 60s or 70s when people would go around saying, Hey, man. So I think that's what John Corson said, that that was the origin of Hey, man's name. So if that helps you remember, hey, man, I listened to a sermon that Alistair Begg had given on this chapter, and he said he started calling Haman, Haman the Horrible. So if that fits for you, uh, it's certainly appropriate. He enters the scene as the villain of the story, and he enters the scene in chapter 3. Notice it says, after these events, the king promoted Haman the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. We'll talk about that in a moment. And advanced him, notice, and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. Now, my title, uh, talking about Mordecai taking a stand, as many of you have studied the book of Esther, you know later it will be Mordecai who challenges Esther to stand and say to her the famous words by which we have named the series, Perhaps you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. And that's what we've named the big picture of this series. But before Esther is asked to stand by cousin Mordecai, who was her guardian and really her adoptive father, uh, first Mordecai will have to stand in this chapter. And I just want to say by application right out of the gate that if you're going to ask other people to take stands, you must model standing yourself. It is easy to tell somebody else in another situation, you need to take your stand. You need, to, you need to be willing to be brave. But if you're a leader, you have to model standing before others are going to be willing to stand, either with you, behind you, or side by side. Amen? And so we need more people who are willing to take a stand in our culture and even in the church culture. Uh, the book of Ephesians is where I want to take you because I want to show you that there is a spiritual component Ephesians 6 behind this whole thing as this chapter will unfold. This is familiar territory to many of us, but I want to show you this idea of standing from the, the spiritual perspective in terms of spiritual warfare. As Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he says these words. He says, finally, Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, Ephesians 6, 12, is not against flesh and blood. Now, Mordecai could see his struggle against Haman, but Paul says, ultimately, it's not against humanity, it's not against flesh and blood, but the struggle is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, in light of that battle, Ephesians 6, 13 Take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to what? To stand firm. 
So, as we turn back to the book of Esther, I ask you this question. Are you doing everything to stand firm? Now, you might ask me, well, what does it mean to do everything to stand firm? Well, that section tells you what it means. It means to put on the full armor of God. And the armor of God is simply a metaphor for the power and presence of God. It's a picture of a believer in subjection to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Another way to put it is Romans 13, 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. It goes on to say in that same chapter, Put on the armor of light. You are in a battle. You have to realize that. In fact, the pundits, the talking heads of our times, if they could just realize that much of what we're seeing in our culture, in other parts of the world, in struggles with hatred and uh, you know, opposing ideas and, and all that we see in our world has spiritual origins, especially explaining the history of the Jewish uh, people and the nation of Israel. And even today, when you see the hatred that comes out, you need to understand there's a spiritual explanation in the Bible for that. And that same battle now comes to us as believers and we are called to stand. Mordecai's stance in this chapter should be a reminder that we are called to stand. Now we got to pick our battles, no doubt. There are things in this world, we, we go to the workplace, we've got to deal with you know, unbelievers, and we've got to deal with all kinds of different stuff. But there are things that are non-negotiables for the Christian. And Jesus even told us that we have to count the cost. And so there are, there are spiritual warfare that is behind Haman's actions in this chapter. But the chapter begins with Esther 3.1, after these events. Now whenever you're reading your Bible and you see after these things or after these events, what do you do? You look back, right? Well, what came before is the elevation of Esther as the queen of Persia, right? And Esther's elevation as queen has a bigger purpose behind it. You see, she's being elevated by God through what we call, would call everyday circumstances. God takes, he exploits evil for his good purposes to elevate Esther to save his people. But something else happened, and we, we looked at this at the end of chapter 2. In those days, 2.21, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, he learned of this plot of these two men who were plotting to kill the king. He exposed it. He told Esther. Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. The plot was investigated, found to be so, and these men were dealt with severely. And it was documented in the, it was written, what Mordecai had done, in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. So Mordecai was the one responsible for revealing the assassination plot, and it was written down. But then the next verse says, after these events, after Mordecai exposed an assassination plot, wouldn't you think that you would read next? And Mordecai advanced and got a uh, high position in the court because of his great bravery. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you expect to see that? Wouldn't you expect to see something like this? And then Mordecai was promoted by the king in gratitude for exposing this assassination plot and saving his life. But that's not what you read. Rather, you read about the elevation of a man named Haman 
from the 60s or 70s. What is going on here? Why did Mordecai get passed over and Haman get elevated? Where did Haman come from? It seems like the dude comes out of left field in the narrative. Where's he been? Now we learn about Haman and Mordecai doesn't get the promotion. How many of you have had in your career where you know, you've been working hard and you know, you've been doing great things and maybe it even came to the boss's attention and then there's a time for a promotion and you don't get the promotion. And some dude named Hey Man who goes around the company saying, Hey man, got the promotion over you. That's a bummer. And that's something hard that, that we face in life. Sometimes we, we do all the right things and we get passed over for the promotion. But you know what? God's timing is going to be perfect, and there's a reason why this all happens the way it does. And Mordecai is going to have to wait, but later he will be promoted. And sometimes waiting, although it's the hardest part, can be God's actual providential hand in your life. Sometimes there's a door that opens, and maybe it's not the best door for you, or it's not the best time for that door. And we don't always see all the layers and the details. That's why we have to trust in the Lord. We have to trust in God's timing and God's providence, even though we always can't make sense of it. And so uh, Mordecai is going to take his stand in this chapter. After these events, he is not promoted. There's another man, and he is Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, some of you are reading your Bible, and you're like, what in the world is an Agagite? Well, there is a backstory to this, and this Agagite is connected to the Amalekites. And I, I think you need to see the backstory, so I want you to turn to the second book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, chapter 17. Here's the backstory. The children of Israel have been delivered by God's mighty hand. Uh, the Passover has happened. They've gone out of Egypt with the treasures of Egypt, God's mighty hand, and God is leading them out. And uh, he has supplied water for them in a miraculous way. And uh, here's what happens. This is Exodus 17. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. 17.9 of Exodus. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, for those of you who have read the story before, you know that Moses is on the top of the hill. Joshua's down fight, fighting the Amalekites. They've attacked Israel. Israel's vulnerable at this point. And uh, Moses is up on the top of the hill, and Aaron and Hur come up and hold his hands. And when ha Moses' hands are held up in a prayer posture before God, the Israelites prevail down in the war against Amalek. When Moses' hands get heavy and they drop, they start to lose the battle. And so Aaron and Hur come and hold up his, his arms, and Israel ends up getting the victory. And it's a victory over Amalek. Look at verse 13. It says, So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. So this is to be documented. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is My Banner. Now many of you know that as Jehovah Nissi, N-I-S-S-I. -S 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 the Lord is My Banner. It could mean standard or flag, 
I have a friend that studies Hebrew a lot, and he believes that you could render this, looking at the Hebrew picture language, the Lord is the one I lean on. And my friend is always tempted to break out into, lean on me when you're not strong. Anyway, we'll stop right there. <laughs> so, I just want you to park here for a second. The Lord is the one I lean on. The Lord is my banner. So they document the victory. Moses leaned on the Lord, if you will. He was on the top of the hill. And the Lord pronounces, he, he makes, he swears. Notice, it, it, it says, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek. What's your Bible say? From generation to generation. All right? With that in mind, turn over to 1 Samuel. So you got to go a little bit uh, to the right. 1 Samuel chapter 15. All right, so Israel, their history is unfolding. Saul becomes the first king of Israel. He's the son of Kish, and he is given a responsibility by God to protect the nation against enemies. So this is 1 Samuel 15.1. Samuel said to Saul, 1 Samuel 15.1, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Now that's Exodus 17, what we just read. How he set himself against him on the way, that is, as they were going out of Egypt, while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go, in light of this, says the Lord, and remember he had sworn in Exodus 17, this is later, go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him. And of course, this is a radical command by God to wipe out the nation. And this is one of those verses where people struggle. Did God really say to do this? Yes, he did. And I'm going to show you why in a moment. So just skip down uh, for the sake of time. So Saul defeated the Amalekites seven from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites alive. Now remember that Haman is an Agagite. This is in all likelihood his origin or his family tree or his genealogy or ethnicity. He comes from King Agag, king of the Amalekites. There are first century writers, Jewish writers, who by way of uh, connecting this name, connected the name Agagites to Romans in the first century. And they did it because they, the Romans were the enemies of Israel. They were occupying Israel in the time of Jesus. And so they called the Romans Agagites, some of the Jewish writers of the time. But I believe that right here, and this is what the rabbis would agree with, that actually Haman is an actual descendant of King Agag. And so we, here's the story. So, so he grabs the king alive, and uh, utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, and so forth. Um, so, verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. He's not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, 
Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. A little bit about Saul's pride there. Then turned and proceeded uh, on down to Gilgal. 13. And Samuel came to Saul. Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, who? Your God. Oops. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight against them until they exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. Can everybody write in there your Bible? Justification, justification. I did obey. Isn't partial obedience obedience? I, I, I obeyed 60%. Isn't that good enough? No, obedience, folks, is obedience. So Saul's making his excuses. I did obey and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil. It's their fault. The woman that you gave me, she gave to me. That's why I ate it. Just write Adam right there. Some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now I'm going to show you one more. Psalm 83. All right, go to the Psalms, a little past Esther, Psalm 83. And I, I want you just to get a full picture of the backdrop of this man's origins, Haman's origins. This is Psalm 83. It's a Psalm of Asaph. Skip down to verse 3, Psalm 83, 3. It says, they, that is the nations here, make shrewd plans, 83, 3, against thy people and conspire together against thy treasured ones. They have said, Psalm 83, 4, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let's wipe out Israel as a nation, that the name of Israel may be, be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against thee do they make a covenant. The tents of Edom, now some of the nations are named here that do this. The Ishmaelites, Moab, and the Hagrites. Gebel and Ammon, and who? There's Amalek. You have Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Notice what they say. They say, for, come and let us wipe them out as a nation. Now, with this backstory in mind, if you return to the book of Esther, 
when Haman is introduced, this is the history that you have to see. Uh, Haman is an Agagite. And his family line from Amalek is responsible for wanting to destroy God's people. Whenever a people group wants to destroy God's people, God takes that extremely personally. Jesus said to Saul on the road to, to Damascus when he confronted Saul before he became Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, when God's people are persecuted, God takes that personally. And by extension, when they're persecuted, it's as though they were persecuting Christ, but they can't get to Christ, and you represent Christ, so they want to persecute his people. And so Haman, with this history in mind, is a man that comes from these origins. And of course, he's going to continue this. Application point. Sometimes we don't uh, sometimes we don't do what God would call us to do. We, maybe it's partial obedience. Maybe we don't completely understand why God has told us to do something. And we either partially obey or we just wallow in our sin. And we don't realize that sometimes what God has called us to do is for multiple reasons beyond even our own lifetime. Do you know that when the book of Esther is unfolding, it's about 600 years removed from the time of King Saul, and uh, it's way removed from the time of the Exodus. So you're talking about, you could say six generations or more later, the disobedience of Saul still reverberates through the nation of Israel. And one writer put it this way, past sins have a way of coming back repeatedly to haunt us. Sometimes our children after us. How many difficult ethical decisions over which we agonize for hours would even be confronting us were it not for our past sins? People's lives can become horribly complicated to the point where the wisdom of Solomon is needed to know how to proceed. Yet in many cases, says this writer, the most substantial complications come as the direct byproduct of past sins, close quote. See, sometimes we think that obedience is just about us. Not necessarily. Obedience can bless future generations. And disobedience can reverberate negatively to future generations. And Saul, King Saul, is a perfect example of that. And while our children and grandchildren are not responsible for our sins, they still swim in the consequences of our bad decisions. Amen? It, it sometimes is hard to take. Now, God is so full of grace that if we planted our flag in our generation, even if we didn't have any Christians in our family, and we said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, God can take all of that junk and he can make it all new, right? He can give us a new start. That is the awesome news. To be in Christ, we are new creations. So here's Haman and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, Esther 3.2, bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Now all the king's servants at the gate, which was where you did official business in the kingdom, they all bowed down. They paid homage, which can mean in the Hebrew here to some sort of uh, worship. It may not mean that exactly here. It may be an exaggerated bow. But the king had sent out some sort of 
command that all the officials at the gate, the city officials, the servants of the king, were to bow to Haman. That's how high he had been elevated. I don't know if it was an inner office email. I don't know, you know how the word got out. But this was the command from the top. Everybody is to bow down and pay homage to Haman. But one man said no. Now, the, we mentioned in the opening of the book that the book of Esther is uh, not exactly, the, the heroes are not exactly like the book of Daniel. Because it seems like there's a little bit more compromise going on with Mordecai and Esther being in Persia and kind of seeming to go with the flow sometimes. We don't have all the details. But we know that in Daniel 3, it was three Hebrew youths who took their stand when everybody else was bowing down before the golden idol. And in Esther 3, Mordecai takes his stand. Daniel 3 and Esther 3. Different situations. In, in the one case of the three Hebrew youths, when they don't bow and they end up in the fire, the Lord shows up and he's real shiny, remember? <laughs> in the fire with them. But in Esther 3, we don't see like a miraculous uh, manifestation in that way. We just see Mordecai take his stand and... Uh, that's all we're told. He will not pay homage. Uh, once again, one writer says, the issue of respect has come before us in the book of Esther. Uh, at the end of chapter one, remember, a decree went out from the king for all wives to respect their husbands. I'm sure that went over big. You know, you get that in the mail. From now on, in this household and all over the Persian Empire, wives must respect their husbands. That should help every household, don't you think? And now the issue of respect is here before us again because uh, Haman is going to take this very personally. Uh, note, the Old Testament does not have a problem with paying appropriate respect to pagan rulers. You can see uh, Joseph's brothers bow before him in Egypt. You see later in the book that Queen Esther bows before King Xerxes. And so that's chapter 8, verse 3. So what's going on here? Were they asking more of Mordecai? Uh, there have been volumes written, maybe not volumes, but many pages written on the reason why Mordecai won't bow. Because if, if the bowing was simply just paying normal respects to a superior, uh, Mordecai shouldn't really have had an issue with that. So there must be something deeper going on here. The king's servants who were at the king's gate, verse 3, Esther 3, said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? What's, if we could put it in our language, what's the boss going to think when he hears about this? That you don't, you don't follow what he commanded. Now, I throw it out to you. Why do you think uh, Mordecai wouldn't bow? He was not an insurrectionist. He wasn't a zealot. He had just revealed a plot to spare the king an assassination. So he wasn't against the Persian leadership. Why in this particular case will he not bow to Haman? Does he simply just not like his name? <laughs> or is it possible, and I throw this out as my own personal conjecture, is it possible that Mordecai knows Haman's ancestry? Has it come out in some way? Has it been revealed that Haman is an Agagite and Mordecai being a Jew and knowing all these stories knows exactly from Sabbath school <laughs> where this tension lies? This is a simmering conflict down through the ages that King Saul didn't deal with, that Psalm 83 talks about. Could it be that? 
Remember that Mordecai has told Esther to hide the fact that she's a Jew. Why? Well, he may sense in the court of Persia or maybe around town or maybe through all the provinces that there is anti-Semitism going on. And he's concerned that maybe something's about to blow up in Persia. And if Esther's ethnicity is revealed that maybe she is going to be in some trouble, but maybe it's also because he knows about Haman and he knows that maybe there's been talk that Haman hates Jewish people. This wouldn't be the first time in history that we heard talk like that, would it? That some person in power, especially in Persia, by the way, Persia is modern-day Iran, and the name changed from Persia to Iran in the early 1900s. So, Persia is Iran. And uh, we all know what Mahmoud Ahmadinejabi is, <laughs> whatever his name. We know what he said, right? Before the UN and other places where he, he's giving public speeches. Essentially, Israel has no right to exist and should be pushed into the sea and perish. There's nothing new under the sun, brothers and sisters. This conflict continues right now. And there are people who haven't said it publicly, but that's what they believe. That Israel has no right to exist. In fact, in 48, when they became a nation again, and even in 67, we know that they were being attacked from all sides simply for wanting their little sliver of land in the Middle East that was given to them by God. And by the way, the, all the debate about borders today, I'll say this to you. God does acknowledge borders. He laid out the borders of the Holy Land, so apparently God does believe in borders. I know there's a lot of debates about compassion and what should we do given the situations we're in. And I'm not telling you that it's an easy debate, but I am saying this to you. The God of the Bible does acknowledge borders and nations and countries and even walls that were rebuilt in Nehemiah in 52 days. So we need a biblical worldview, certainly, but we also need the compassion of Christ. And these are complicated times we live in. So why he refused to bow probably because he knew who Haman was. And it was uh, when they had spoken daily to him, so the co-workers, the fellow servants, every day, uh, they would ask him, why aren't, you, why aren't you bowing? Why aren't you bowing? And he would not listen to them. That they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them, and now it comes out, that he was a Jew. There's some different versions here about how this came about. His Jewishness was revealed. But this is the standard uh, view of this that it came out that finally Mordecai told them that he was Jewish and that's the only biblical reason we have as to why he didn't bow everything else I just told you is conjecture <laughs> what the Bible actually says is the reason that Mordecai won't bow is that he's Jewish and he has an issue with it to some degree which may uh, of course go to the lineage of Haman so, is it because of the long-standing family feud? I don't know. But did Mordecai get into the history? Did he tell them the backstory about Exodus 17 and 1 Samuel 15? I don't know. But he did expose his Jewishness. We are citizens of heaven. We are under God's rule, but we're also citizens of this country. We have to operate with dignity and respect 
but we also cannot compromise our true king's commands. This is where we need to be biblically, prayerfully, and thoughtfully working out our salvation with fear and trembling. God's at work in us, but we have to know which hills we should die on. And in which cases we can say, you know what, uh, I'm at work here, and so this is an acceptable mode to operate in, but I won't compromise this. This is my boundary. This is my line. And we got to know what hills we got to die on. Amen? We have to know, you know, how to operate in a world dominated by secular thought and secular humanism. Well, when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. We are called to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not filled with rage, but Haman was filled with rage. Can you imagine Haman going home after a long day in the Persian court? Something like this. He walks in, puts his briefcase down, and his wife says, Honey, what's wrong? Why the long face? You just got promoted. Everybody's bound down to you in the Persian court. When I walked by today, I saw all these people bow down before you. Hey, man. Hey, man. Hey, man. What's wrong? There's this one Jewish guy. He won't bow down to me. <laughs> Have you ever had a day where you could say 27 things went right today, but this one person, why the long face, honey? Mordecai. <laughs> the one, we tend to focus on the one thing that goes wrong despite all the other things that went right for us. Is that you? Are you the focuser on the negative or negative? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of good things going on, but, but this, my TV show's off the air forever. <laughs> what? My team lost in the playoffs. That was a terrible call, non-call, by the refs against the Saints, which is a biblical football team. The saints! Somehow that's wrong. I know there's Rams fans here. Rams are biblical too, right? Ram caught in the thicket, Genesis 22. It's all there. Anyway, never mind. We digress. Oh, I knew that was going to stir the crowd right there. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai 6 alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. He finds out, finds out he's Jewish. Therefore Haman, what? Sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman, filled with rage, doesn't want just Mordecai to pay the price. He decides that all Jews should die in light of the fact that Mordecai won't bow down to him. What? Where, where this hatred? Why, why this radical move that he believes all Jews should die? Listen to this NIV application commentary. One source reports that in the last century alone, an average of 300,000 Christians have been martyred each year. Did you hear that number? 
in the last century alone, the average number of Christians martyred per year is 300,000. When's the last time you heard a news report on Christian persecution? When's the last time that you heard a statistic like that given to you about, you know, Christians get blamed for, the Christians are responsible for this and that. When's the last time you heard a report about the Christian hospitals that are built, uh, Christian ministries that are going into AIDS-dominated areas, going into disaster areas, uh, you know, uh, Christian persecution, 300,000 people a year martyred simply for being Christians. Well, Mordecai probably couldn't have imagined that his stand, not bowing to Haman, would have this kind of sweeping consequence. But I'll say this to you. Haman's uh, decision is no less than satanically energized. Let me give you some names here. Haman, Herod, Hitler. Three H's. Haman wants to destroy all the Jews because Mordecai won't bow down to him. Herod killed all the baby boys, Matthew 2.16, in uh, Bethlehem because he was afraid of the king of the Jews, the Messiah, and Herod killed all the babies, two years old, males, two years old and under, and Hitler tried to wipe out an entire race of people, and I will tell you, in all three cases, and many more that I could cite, satanically energized, because Satan hates the people of God and has been trying to destroy the people of God since really the beginning. That's the only explanation for this. He wants all Jews to die? Why? Because the source is Satan. So in the first month, seven, which is the month of Nisan, that's the Jewish month of Abib. Nisan is a Babylonian name. In the 12th year, uh, scholars put this at 474 B.C., of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the 12th month, that is the month Adar. That's our February, March. And there would be 11, an 11-month interval from the month of Nisan all the way back to Adar. The month of Nisan is a bib for the Jews. It's the first month of the religious calendar. So if you think Nisan, just think Passover. Because that's the Passover month for the Jew. And so in the first month, uh, this is what happens. The lot begins to be cast. And through some sort of divination to find out you know, what the gods or fate would say, uh, Haman's looking for the proper time to execute his wrath against all the Jews. See the word pur there? That's the singular form. The, the plural form of pur or lot is purim. And that's the feast that the Jews celebrate based upon the book of Esther is the feast of Purim, which celebrates God's deliverance from Haman's evil plot. This is the origin of the feast's name, Purim, for the lot that is cast. And interestingly enough, the New Living Translation has it this way. So in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes, five years since Esther became the queen, Rain. Lots were cast in Haman's presence. The lots were called Purim to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March 7th, 
nearly a year later or 11 months later. So all this is unfolding in the month of Nisan. He rolls the dice. That's kind of what an ancient lot was, kind of a strange thing to us, but they tried to find out the will of the stars or fate or the gods. But Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You could, you could cast lots, but God supersedes it all, is Proverbs 16.33. So then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, 8, There is a certain people, he doesn't name them, scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people. That's certainly true. They do not observe the king's laws. I'm not sure that's true, because only Mordecai refused to bow to him. There's nothing else we're told about other Jews in Persia. So it is not in the what? The king's interest to let them, this people group, remain. Now, had Haman slipped in that I'm talking about the Jewish race, uh, there's a couple things that would be in the king's interest, like uh, his queen is Jewish, Esther. Her name, Hadassah, we find out. And Mordecai, who just saved his life from an assassination plot, is also a Jew. If he had known that, if he was told the truth, but Haman is a master of manipulation. Know anybody like that? Keep out some key details like, you know, this edict will mean your wife will have to die. I'm sure you're good with that, right? Wrong. And so he, he puts this before the, the king, but he's a liar. And Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And he says, if it's pleasing to the king, nine, let it be decreed, they be destroyed, this people group who's so different and so forth. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver, this is a huge amount, into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put it into the king's treasuries. Now secular history tells us that the king had suffered some losses in military warfare, so maybe the coffers needed to be replenished. I don't know. I don't know if there was a carrot that he dangled or whatever. But he says, hey, this will pay handsomely as well, and it'll go right back into the kingdom. This will be a win-win, king. And the king took his signet ring, kind of an ancient signature, from his hand, and he gave it to Haman, uh, uh, essentially saying, my authority is now in your hands. And uh, literally, they take a ring, and they would impress it in hot wax to seal an official document. And so the, he took the signet ring and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha. We're reminded again why all this is happening. He's the Agagite. He's the enemy of the Jews. And so here's the decree. He wants all these Jews to be destroyed. And the king said to Haman, the silver is yours. I'm not even worried about the money. The people also, to do with them as you please. You could see the wry smile break onto Haman's face. Awesome. Finally. I'll be rid of Mordecai and everybody connected to him. And a sinister laugh behind the laugh of an ancient enemy, a fallen uh, high angel who seems to be getting his way. And the king looks the other way. He doesn't even check to see who the people group is. You want to talk about abdicating responsibility? Uh, I don't even want to know. <laughs> What? And had he known, he wouldn't have ever done it. Looking the other way is not leadership. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. 
The 13th day of the first month, brothers and sisters, is the day before Passover. Passover is the 14th of Nisan. You could look at Exodus 12, Leviticus 23. This is the day before Passover. You could say for us maybe the day before Good Friday or the day before our Easter weekend celebration. Uh, a holiday that's supposed to be about victory and hope. Of course, the Passover is certainly about the death of the, the Lamb, but then it leads us into a celebration that it doesn't end there and that we have salvation through the cross, through His blood. But the Jewish people can't celebrate their historical holiday with the literal blood of a literal lamb, remembering God's delivering hand, because now an edict has gone out to kill all of their people. It's the 13th day of the first month, the day before the Passover. And the implicit question is, can God deliver again from the evil plan to wipe out his people? And it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governor's twelve who were over each province, to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring. Most believe that this all unfolds uh, April 7th, 474 B.C. And the question, is their fate sealed? Can there be another radical deliverance by God? Can you imagine when word gets out the day before Passover and the Jews know there's a decree of death upon them? Can you imagine the holiday turning from joy to sorrow? You remember a couple years back when all those little kids were killed around Christmas time in that school? And we were moving into, I think it was right, right in the midst of the Christmas season and that terrible tragedy happened. That's kind of... You know, maybe a little how we can get our arms around this. And so the Jews have Passover. The letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, sadly, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. From the time that this all was decided. The lot was cast that they would wait 11 months. The calendar would go almost a year to the month of Adar. So it was kind of made in April. The decree was made in April, and the calendar would go back to the next uh, February, March, if you will, to carry out the decree. So there was 11 months to wait, essentially. Can you imagine that 11 months? Can you imagine the pressure and the, the tears. The next chapter will tell us that uh, Mordecai uh, tears his clothes, 4-1, puts on sackcloth and ashes, goes into the midst of the city, begins to wail. We'll see more of that uh, because of the decree that's put out. A copy of the edict, uh, 14, back in chapter 3. To be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers, kind of like the earlier decree that went out about husbands and wives in chapter 1, went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued in Susa, the capital. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Can you imagine People heard about the decree and they were like, what? 
There's a decree that all Jewish people should be killed in some way. I'm supposed to participate in that decree? I have a good friend at work named Mordecai. I know he's Jewish. I'm not going to do that. Oh, it's the king's decree. And by the way, maybe there's some money in it for you. Or you can seize their possessions. After you take the, their family out, you can take their shoes and clothes and gold. And it's an official decree with the signet seal of the king. A book was written at the time that the... Turn, turn to John 7 and we're wrapping it up. At the time when Nazi Germany was setting their sights on the Jewish people. The church was there in Germany. And there are people who tell stories that, you know, as time unfolded um, and the Jews were going off in the death trains uh, to the concentration camps, that there would be people who were in church on a Sunday morning singing hymns. And some of the witnesses from this time say they would hear the whistle of the train the death train coming behind their church on a Sunday morning. And they would sing louder hymns to God in church to drown out the cries and the screams of the people on the train and the whistle of the train. They would sing their hymns louder to try to drown out the reality of what was happening in their nation. Can you imagine being in a church service hearing a train whistle go by, knowing hundreds and hundreds of people are going to die simply because of their ethnicity and singing louder so you don't have to deal with it. That's largely what the church did in Germany. And that was only decades ago. Unthinkable, isn't it? What humanity can sink to. Jesus said in John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify to it that its deeds are evil. And then John 15, look at 18. This explains a lot. And I just want to leave you with some of these thoughts. I look at our nation today just like you do, and I, and I start asking some big questions about the division, the disagreements, the hate, the, the extreme positions that some people take. And I have to ask a question as a pastor. And here's my question. Are we ignoring that a lot of the origin of this stuff is spiritual? I think we are, as a nation, ignoring. I think it's easy for people in high places to dismiss the spiritual as a joke. For many of them, that's what they think. It's a joke. There is no relevance to this. Why are we talking about the Bible? Did you see the video clip when we did the video clip? Why does this book mean anything to anybody? Why should we even bother talking about, why are we talking about the Bible? We got bigger problems, I'm telling you, because at the root of a lot of our worldwide problems is a spiritual root. Do you believe that? And to get to the root the word of God must go out from the pulpits of America with uncompromising clarity, but also with love and compassion. Because if we look down our noses at other people and we don't say, hey, I was, I was there, I understand, but there's a better way. We're, just, we're not going to give the answer that the world needs. The answer to the problem is Christ.
Our king is a king of love. He saves us from the decree of death, sin and death. Would you pray with me? Father, just thank you so much for a decree had gone out. The wages of sin is death. But we have a king of love, a king that cares about us, and a king that says that decree will not stand. And in fact, I love you so much. I'm going to step in and die and suffer what you should have suffered by that decree because I'm a king of love. This is the king that we serve. Jesus said they hated me without a cause. Yet we look to a cross, Lord, and we see that crimson flow, that blood running down a crown of thorns placed on your head, a decree that went out that all should die because of sin. And we understand that. But then we see the king of love step in and say, no, I'm going to take the fall for my people. I'm going to let that crown of thorns be pressed into my brow. I'm going to take the nails in my hands and my feet. I'm going to bear the weight of their sin. I'm going to pay the redemption price. And what the enemy intended for evil, a cross, God exploited for good, as you always do, Lord. And the story of Esther is a story of the gospel. It's the story of a God, a king of love, who intervenes. Sometimes we can't always see it. Sometimes we don't always see the, the clear trail, but we sense your presence, and we can look back and see the fingerprints. And so help us, Lord, in times of crisis and times of inexplicable evil, in times when we feel even alienated simply because we're a Christian, that we know you are for us and not against us. And there is an answer to what ails us, and we are praying that we are on the cusp of a revival in America because we love this country, Lord. We're praying that your church would awaken we're praying that it would start with us, it would start with me, my house, my heart. Thank you that you have thwarted evil, wicked schemes like Haman proposed. But we know also that your people have suffered. And you said in this world, you're going to have some trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. To keep your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Jesus and you don't know him, then you don't know hope. He is the God of hope, but he can give you hope right now. Just ask him into your life, something this simple. Lord Jesus, just pray it right now if it's you. Don't let this moment pass you by. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. I'm sorry for my sin, but I thank you that you are the king of love and that you died in my place and took my punishment, took the wrath of God for me. I repent of my sin and trust you as my Savior, my Lord, and my King. If you're a backslidden Christian, or maybe you just have kind of maybe turned a little bit because of struggles and pressures, it's a good time to just rededicate your life to walking with Him tonight, right now. No excuses, no turning back. Just, just say, Lord, I just want to I want to be back where I was. I want to walk with you strong. I want to serve you and be a vessel for you. And, and Father, for this wonderful congregation, 
all the saints that are here that are fighting the good fight. May you bless them. May you keep them. May your beautiful face shine on them. May you give them power, strength, endurance, faith, all that they need. Just touch them, bless them, strengthen them. Encourage them in the king of love, in the reality of your love for us, Lord. It's so good, so beautiful. We thank you.